Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We will begin at 11.1. Everybody got it? Yes. The people took to complaining bitterly before the Lord. The Lord heard and was incensed. A fire of the Lord broke out against them, ravaging the outskirts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. That place was named Terabah, because a fire of the Lord had broken out against them. The riffraff in their midst felt a gluttonous craving, and then the Israelites wept and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now our gullets are shriveled, There is nothing at all, nothing but this manna to look to. (laughs) Now the manna was like coriander seed, and in color it was like dellum. The people would go about and gather it, grind it between millstones or pound it in a mortar, boil it in a pot, and make it into cakes. It tasted like rich cream. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall upon it. All right. Hey, Jamie, what is the Hebrew for red brown? Ha. Good question. All right, so let's look at 11.1. So it's very, very, very unusual in studying about the Hebrews or the Jews that we see anything about complaining, right? Which is a very, very unusual incident in uh, Jewish history. So, vayhi ha'am kemit onanim. So they were as complainers. Rab oznei Adonai. It was evil in the ears of yod hey Adonai. And yod heard. Vayichar apo. Right? And God's nostrils flare. That is never, never a good thing. <laughs> God's nostrils flaring is never a good thing. But Tiva Erbam Esh. And so there burned in them a fire, a fire of Yudhevave, Vitochal Bakitse Amachane, and it consumed the edges uh, of the camp. All right, so what are they complaining about? What are they complaining about here? Tough life. They don't have onions and garlic. That's coming. What are they complaining about here? They want to be back in Egypt. They're unhappy. Just because they're complainers. Huh? What did you say, Sheldon? Just because they're complainers. They're just complainers. (laughs) They're just complaining. There's nothing written here about what they're complaining about. That comes next. That they get punished here for mitlo being mitlo nanim, right? For being like mitlo nanim, like complainers. So what are they actually complaining about? It is not written. That comes later, right? That's coming next. That's the next incident. These are two different stories about complaining. The first one, we're not told what they're complaining about. But clearly, God is not happy, right? Whatever it is, whatever they're complaining about, God is not happy. They don't have faith faith that there's going to be an outcome. We don't know, right? We don't know. What what we know is that they're complaining and God punishes them. 
They could be complaining because they're away from what's familiar and in strange places and not used to it. Right. So we've had them complain before, and God has answered their complaints, right? They complained about meat before, right? And God said, I understand. I get it. They complained about water. God took care of it, right? He tells Moshe to speak to the rock. So God has answered their complaints before. Now something has changed. And God is livid at their complaining. Since it doesn't say what they're complaining about, sometimes I see people who complain but they're scared. So they complain. They fetch. They don't feel they're in control. So it could absolutely be just generic complaining, right, because they're scared, they don't have faith, they're in a new place, they don't know where they are, they're away from all that's familiar. All of these are what drives, right, the behavior, but we're not, so the, the rabbis, some of them are critical of the people at this point saying they don't even have what to complain about, and they're complaining. That's where the commentators go. God is furious because they're complaining and they don't even have a complaint. They're just complaining to complain, right? And that, that that's what makes God so angry is that they, they are ungrateful, right? They are afraid, they lack faith, they're scared of, of the unfamiliar, whatever it is, they, they don't even have a justifiable issue. They're just complaining. All right. So a fire breaks out, and uh, we don't know what this means. It like it says ravages in my translation, ravaging the outskirts of the camp. But the but the verb is v'tochal. Uh, it ate up the edges of the camp. It consumed the edges of the camp. So it had to have scared them, right? Because fire at the edge of a camp is a scary thing. Um, but and that's. That's all we hear about what the actual consequence was. But what do the people do immediately? They, what do they do? They cry out to Moshe. Right? They call out to Moshe. And Moshe prays to God. So Moshe intercedes on the people's behalf as usual. This is what Moshe does, right? They get in trouble and Moshe intercedes on the people's behalf. So Moshe prays to God and the fire dies down. The place is named Tavera Kibarabam Ish because they're burned against them a fire. That's it. That's the end of that story. That's the end of that episode. Okay? All right, now we get a separate incident starting at verse 4. To your question, Lim. Baha Asaf Suf. So the word for riffraff is asafsuf, <clears throat> very much like riffraff. So asafsuf is onomatopoeia, right? Exactly like riffraff. It, the word doesn't really have so much meaning. It's that you get the sense just from the sound of the word that, right, it's... Isn't the term Arab rav used elsewhere? Yes. As riffraff? No. Or no? Some people want to conflate them, oh. but the, the Erev Rav literally means a mixed multitude, meaning it wasn't just Israelites that left. Um, this seems to be designating 
a portion of the people as Asaf Suf, as riffraff. Some people want to conflate those. I don't, right? Because I think that that's a yucky, that's a yucky conflation to say who's the one, who's the riffraff. Well, obviously it's the non-Israelites among them. So I just I don't I don't like putting them together. But whoever Asaf Suf is, it's clearly not your elite, right? That this is the the riffraff that is in their midst. Hit avu ta'ava. So can you hear the Hebrew that it's, even if you don't speak Hebrew, hit avu ta'ava. It's the same root, right? So they craved, what does your thing say? Tell me what your translations say. They felt a gluttonous craving. Okay, I'm not sure how that translation, mine says that too. I don't know how they got that translation. Um, because it actually is the same shoresh. It's the same root when we look at ta'ava, craving. The verb, so if ta'ava is a craving, ta'ava is a craving, then the verb is they hit avu, right? It's reflexive. Hit avu ta'ava. So what does it literally mean? Hit avu ta'ava. So they craved a craving. Hmm, mm, everyone goes, hmm. Tell me what's the hmm about. How does this help us understand what might be God's response, God being angry about this? If this is the translation. Right? They crave, what do they crave? The rabbis say the reason God gets so angry because they crave having a craving. God has taken care of all of their needs. Physically, spiritually, everything. Everything they need has been given to them. They are satisfied. They are sated. And they can't stand it. They crave to have a craving. They crave the feeling of having a physical craving. They miss it. Who would want that? Former slaves. <laughs> Former slaves. Sounds what like they knew. That makes sense because they're used to, I want freedom. I, I don't want to work so hard. It's a familiar feeling. So they are used to craving something. If you're poor, you're a slave, you don't have control of your life, you crave fill in the blank. And now that they are redeemed, they're craving having a craving. They're free. They now have responsibility. What else has happened between slavery and this moment? A big event. What's a big event that happened? Sinai. Sinai. They got revelation. They got Torah. They got everything. They're being fed. And they, they've got Torah. They've, they've encountered the divine. They've been made a nation of priests. A holy people with a mission on its way to its own land promised to their ancestors. They've got it all. And they can't stand it. 
It sounds like an adolescent. It sounds like an adolescent. <laughs> and as we're going to see from Rabbi David Kasher, uh, it sounds human. This is what we do. The minute we get something that we've been craving, what happens? We want something more. We want something else. We want the iPhone whatever, 7. I don't know what it is. I don't use one. So, um, or, or more of what we've gotten. Right? But we, as soon as our craving is answered, what happens for human beings? We crave something else. So what does that mean about what we were craving before? It wasn't the answer. Right? It's, that's not what we were actually craving. I wasn't craving a new phone. I'm craving what I think having a new phone will give me. Status, satisfaction, whatever those things are. So it's reaching out here for things that will satisfy what's in here. And does that ever work? No, it does not. Right, so on some level, this is very much a story about what it is to be human. Very much a story about. In this translation, they describe the craving as gluttonous. Right, right. So a big one. Right. Um, so I, I think they choose gluttonous as a translation in order to kind of really give the sense of. You know, gluttony is just kind of like extra. It's just extra. Well, they're about to talk about food. Yeah. Yep. Their issue is food. Right? Well, we are Jews. Okay. <laughs> so, hit avuta ava. They crave a craving. And what do they say? If only we had meat to eat. And the commentators say that meat here means fish. <laughs> that in Egypt, this was a staple. Um, and everything listed here is a staple for the poor in Egypt. This is what the poor people ate in Egypt. We remember the fish that we used to eat for free. We ate for free in Egypt. We didn't have to pay for it. We didn't have to work for it. We, we, got, we got, it was free. All we had to do was be slaves. Right? So, the fish that we ate for free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, now our gullets are shriveled. It's very hard to translate the Hebrew, which is much better than the English. Um, and now we have nothing, right, except this man. And and. And everything else isn't. Well, all we have is this man. So now the text is going to answer every single one of the complaints. By the way, man sounds great. It says it tasted like sweet. Well, so we're going we're to have the text is now going to answer all of their complaints. The mana was like chicken. was like <laughs> was like coriander seed. How does that answer one of their complaints? Um, it's that it's coriander seed is very easy to access, right? So it, it wasn't like they had to dig for it or climb for it, right? It was readily available. The people would go out and gather it, right? So it was easy to collect, and they would grind it or pound it into a into mortar, 
or boil it in a pot and make it into cake. So the it's re, this is refuting that there's only this this same same same. Obviously, it could be prepared in lots of different ways. So it didn't have to. It wasn't just the same thing. It wasn't like Peter, peanut butter and jelly fell from the sky every day. It was. It could be prepared differently. It could be boiled. It could be made into cakes. And it's still peanut butter and jelly. And it's still peanut butter and jelly. It tasted like rich cream. Right? And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the mana would fall upon it. So that it's clean, right? The dew's there and the man falls on the dew. Everything's clean. It's easy. You can prepare it lots of different ways. And it tasted like rich cream. Who can complain? Juice. Right? Well, right, Jews. Um, that it tastes like cream. And, and according to the rabbinic tradition, it, the mana tasted like whatever you wanted it to. So if you, you wanted... You know, ice cream, it tasted like ice cream. If you wanted meat, it tasted like meat. So why are they complaining? If it could taste like meat and it satisfied their hunger, what's the complaint? The other uh, thing about this is why else does it seem odd that they're saying we want meat? All we have is mana. What are they going to sacrifice? Aren't they bringing sacrifices? What are they sacrificing? Animals! They have animals! Didn't we see that they left Egypt with a bunch of animals? They're always dealing with their flocks and herds. They have meat! So what's the problem? It's clear that they have animals with them that they could eat. And that they could milk, presumably. So, so maybe Egypt wasn't all that bad. So it's interesting that what they focus on is the food of poverty in Egypt, right? They're not because they didn't know from the luxurious food of Egypt. All they knew was the food of the poor. All they knew was gefilte fish. Right? That's all they knew. Ground up, cheap stuff. And so that's what they're craving when, right, everything that they have presumably is so much better now. They're craving not only what was maybe not so bad, but they have now glorified slave food. Right? So not only wasn't it so bad, it's way better than mana. It's way better than this other stuff that's that's being given to us. Well, the, the shtetl food, you know, yeah. that they would use every... fish. My father would crave all of that stuff. The, the, that's all they had to cook with. But it, it was a beautiful memory. Right. Or, or it's, a, right, it's a memory of what they knew, right? Right? At, right um, well, it's just a different point. Uh, they're forgetting what God has been saying over and over again that he represents the person he represents the power that brought them out of Egypt and they don't seem to think that's a big deal (laughs) not only do they not think it's a big deal they want to go back 
That would tend to tick God off, you would think. When, you would think. When he keeps saying, who am I, other than the fact that you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I'm the one who brought you out of the land. And by the way, it took me 400 years to hear your cries. But I did. And I did something about it. Yes, I did. And you're still not happy. And you don't have garlic? <laughs> really? Really? One thing about being a slave is you don't have to provide for yourself. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to provide for themselves here. Well, they have to go out and farm and they have to get their food. They don't have to farm. Well, who's mm-hmm. going to give them their food? Get the mana falls from the sky and lands on the dew. All they have to do is go pick it up. They're being fed. Miraculously being fed every day, except Shabbos. <coughs> they collect tw- two portions on Friday. Right? So they're being fed by God. Not only did I take you out, I'm feeding you this miraculous food to, to sustain you, and you don't have to do anything. Are the quails still falling from the sky? Does <laughs> well, that come later? Or yeah, we're going to see. Um, I think this relates to old attachments. As people with memories, we tend to glorify and hold dear some of the old stuff that we experience, and we miss it. So this is a whole new, wonderful, you know, more wealthy kind of life. And there's something about the old life that's being missed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's see what happens. Moshe, as has intervened when they complained before, as is Moshe's role. That's what Moshe does. Let's see what happens. What does Moshe do now? Moses heard the people weeping, every clan apart, each person at the entrance of his tent. The Lord was very angry, and Moses was distressed. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not enjoyed your favor that you have laid the burden of all the... uh, of all this people upon me. Did I conceive all this people? Did I bear them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you have promised on oath to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people when they whine before me and say, give us meat to eat? I cannot carry all this people by myself for it is too much for me. If you would deal thus with me, kill me rather. I beg you, and let me see no more of my wretchedness. See, Moses is fetched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's heavy. He's the biggest piece of fetched. Everybody's fetched. Moses has a meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Moses usually is the one to stand between the people and God, and he just did it five seconds ago with the fire incident. They complained this time. We want meat, blah, blah, blah. What does Moshe say? Kill me. Just kill me. Just shoot me. Put me out of my misery. Right? So this is a direct flip of what happens at Sinai. Remember the golden calf? Yes. What does God say to Moses at the golden calf? Get get down there. To whom? To your people. Your people have messed up. And what does Moshe say to God? 
These are your people <laughs> that you brought out of Egypt. Right? So God's saying they're yours because right, your son is down there, your daughter, right? So um, when they're messing up. Right. And Moshe says, these are your people. You have to deal with them justly. You are the God of justice. And they're your people. What, is, what happens here? What does Moshe say to God here? I'm done. Did I conceive this people? These are your people. You conceived them, but I'm supposed to carry them around and nurse them. Really? This is your fault. I told you not to touch me. <laughs> right? So it's right that God has conceived this people, but Moshe is the one who has to schlep them around. Moshe has to deal with them. Moshe has to deal with their complaining. Moshe has to say, I'm at me, I'm at me. What am I supposed to do? I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for this. Right? Take your child and, right? And just kill me now. So I think the image I get is of a mother at home with like three kids under five. Right? And, you know, and someone comes home from the end of the day from work and opens the door and it's just like, uh, right, right. Just the look, right? Moshe has just had it with the whining, the complaining, the, he's Right, you know, it's like he's he's had it, and he's having a complete meltdown, and he references them as an infant. So it's not even pushing it; it's Moshe's own metaphor that he's been given a bunch of whiny, ungrateful, self-centered toddlers to deal with. <laughs> Not even cute. Not even cute anymore. They are not cute anymore, right? All right, so tell me, why does this not seem like a legit thing for Moshe to say, I have to carry it all by myself? Because usually he has God carry it. Or way before, didn't Jethro say, appoint judges and whatever to... Moshe's already been through this. And Yitro, his father-in-law, says it's not healthy for you, nor is it healthy for the people that you hear all of their problems. Set a, a leader over, remember this? Tens over 50, over 100, over 1,000, and only the, the toughest cases should rise to the Supreme Court. Only the toughest things should come to you, Moshe. Moshe has help. So what's happening? What, what? I'm doing it all by myself? Yitro has already had him appoint other leaders. For whatever reason, he's rejected that, and he's taken the whole thing on himself without looking at it as a joint enterprise. All right, let's see if, if what God does <laughs> is any answer to our question. Go ahead. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 of Israel's elders, of whom you had experience as elders and officers of the people, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their place there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will draw upon the spirit that is on you, and put it upon them. They shall share the burden of the people with you, and you shall not bear it alone. 
and say to the people, Purify yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have kept whining before the Lord, and saying, If only we had meat to eat. Indeed, we were better off in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two, not even five days or ten or twenty, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, for you have rejected the Lord who is among you by whining before him and saying, Oh, why did we ever leave Egypt? You want meat? I'll give you meat. <laughs> Till it's coming out of your noses. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Right? This is like, this is classic stuff. This is classic, right? God's had it. Moses has had it, right? The toddlers are hungry. They missed their nap. And, right, they have gone over to the dark side, right? If Eliana did not get her nap on time, she wouldn't nap. And if she didn't nap... Oh my, it was psychosis is what it was, right? So, and I was like, kill me now, exactly. So is there a connection with the meat coming out of their noses and the nostrils flaring Uh, in anger? So, right, God's nostrils are going to flare and theirs are going to be running meat. meat. (laughs) So... All right, so what does God answer Moshe? So Moshe has said, I can't do this by myself. You've laid too big a burden on me. Just kill me now. Literally, kill me now. And God says, gather for me 70 of Israel's elders whom you have experienced as elders. These are not strangers. These are not people chosen by Lot. These are not people chosen by God. God says to Moshe, gather 70 people that you have experienced as elders. As leaders. Not the ones who already are necessarily. The ones you have experienced as leaders. And bring them to the tent of meeting. And take their place there with you. Right? So take them there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will draw upon the spirit that is on you. And put it on them. They shall share the burden of the people with you, and you shall not bear it alone. This seems different from what Yitro told Moshe to do by appointing people to hear the people's cases. What, what's, the, what's happening here? What, this is not that. What is this? So Yitro's talking about administrative functioning and that it's too much for Moshe to do all the administrating. Here, it seems, God understands Moshe has a different complaint. Moshe is asking for another kind of help other than that. And what does God seem to perceive is the real issue? That Moshe is the only one who is feeding them spiritually. He's the only one, right? Because it says very clearly in the text, right? That I will take min haruach asher alecha. I will take from the ruach, the spirit Mm -hmm. that is on you, and I will put it on them. 
and you won't have to carry this people alone. Where are the priests in all of this? Why they're not. Where, where are they? They're hanging around, doing what they do. But aren't they supposed to deal with the day-to-day administration? Clearly n- not this. Not this. Not this. No, so these are different. This is it the House say. of Representatives. <laughs> They're what? The ho- this is the first House. This is the first House of Representatives, okay? It also says includes the offices of the people, which... To me, means the people that were appointed and uh, yeah. <coughs> so it includes them. It, it can, right? All the el- the elders that he knows. It, maybe it it seems that God is telling Moshe to pick. Moshe gets to pick. No, but then from it, among the elders and the officers, from among them. Oh, okay. He picks 70. Any significance to that? Yes. yes. It is well attested in the ancient Near East as a council. Well attested. Uh, and it goes forward into uh, Jewish history of this. Uh, you know, when we talk about the Sanhedrin, we talk about there's this, there's this notion of 70. But in the ancient Near East, we have attested before Israel uh, 70 elders, a council of 70 elders. So it seems to be, a, and it's also, you know, a number of. Um, a sort of completion, right? So seven is our number of completion times 10. Um, and also like uh, the age of 70s, right? Like the age of wisdom, you know? So it's kind of that, that sense of completion. So, so Bert, you and Bert, Bert qualify. Absolutely. Clearly, clearly it's not enough. Freedom's not enough because we are human, right? And it seems that leadership by the priests doing what they're doing with the cult and the folks who are hearing cases between Israelites is not enough. That kind of leadership is not enough. God understands that, that part of the ruach that is on Moshe must be given to the elders if Moshe is not to carry this people alone. So there's, there's something about charisma, there's something about inspiration, there's something about the ruach of Moshe that needs to be shared with others if Moshe isn't going to be solely responsible for that aspect of carrying the people. Is, is he actually giving Moses's power to these 70? So that's different than the priesthood. I mean, yes, so this is, this is very different from the priesthood. So this is a powerful group that he's creating. They're, they're really yes, and they stay, they stay influential. Yeah. So there are some commentators who want to understand this as God punishing Moshe. Because he's giving... That God did not expect... For if the people are complaining, what does God expect of Moshe? Deal with it. Deal with it. Defend them. Defend them. Save them from me. Really? Yes, really. Defend them. Or else I might do something I might regret. Your job is to defend them from me. 
and you have fallen down on the job. So if you can't do it, you can't do it by yourself, no problem. They're going to have me coming out of their noses, and I will take from your special spirit, Mr. Busy, and I will share it with 70 others. You won't be so special then. And you won't be the only one doing this Ruach business anymore. There'll be 71 of you doing it. Isn't that what Moshe wants? We don't know. Okay. We don't know. Truly, because that's one of the questions the commentators ask. What is Moshe asking for? We don't know. We don't know if he's asking for human help. We don't know if he's asking for divine help. But what he says is, I can't do this by myself. Kill me unless something changes. So someone see this as a punishment of Moses, that Moshe is diminished by the fact that now 70 other people are going to be about this ruach business. But other people want to say, no, it's like a candle. You can light 70 other candles off one flame, and it doesn't diminish the original flame at all. And that he chooses them. And he chooses them, yes. But, but even if you understand it as a punishment, God could be saying, okay, you know what? Go pick five of your buddies. Bring me five of your buddies. And I'm going to now, right, take away from you, and I'm going to give it to them. So it could still be read, if you wanted to read it as a punishment, that he picks them, makes it even worse, right? My mother was told by her grandmother, go cut a switch off the tree. And I'm not gonna go. go pick your switch that I'm now going to beat you with. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. Go pick your switch. And just, just like the people, Moses is not perfect. Moses, and, and is it, this is part, I think, of his decline as a leader, because the whole question ultimately becomes, why doesn't Moses get to the promised land? Why is Moses punished? I know there's a lot of reasons, but this is kind of one of the times when it's clear that he doesn't have maybe what he had before. I'm not going to let you off the hook and kill you. Yeah. Killing you is too easy for you. Right? God has lost confidence in Moses is losing confidence. Yeah, because God could have said, you know, Moses, you you ought to go to a shrink and just copy (laughs) him. He didn't do that. He said, Moses, I'm just demoting you. Yeah, you're out. You're done. I think that as an influence leader, one person can't do it, then it needs to have more people in the field interacting with everybody. Okay, so two readings. One is that Moshe is starting a decline. He doesn't have it anymore. God's demoting him. Another one is that this is normal, and no, no human being other than Moshe could have made it this long. Uh, right, and that, and that God understands that it's too much for one person to be dealing with this ruach business. But that's not incompatible. Right? I mean, both views can exist side by side. I mean, well, yeah, but one has implications that another doesn't. God's, so, but God's had experience with Moses now for a lot of years, and it's time maybe he's just saying, it's, as Bert says, this may be the sign that God is getting ready to say, you know, we're going to need somebody else. That's absolutely one reading. All I'm saying is that there could be a different reading that does not involve Moshe diminishing at all. At all. It's an expansion, and we'll, and I'll, and we'll see why. All right, 21. But Moses said, 
The people who are with me number 600,000 men, yet you say, I will give them enough meat to eat for a whole month. Could enough flocks and herds be slaughtered to suffice them? Or could all the fish of the sea be gathered for them to suffice them? And the Lord answered Moses, Is there a limit to the Lord's power? You shall soon see whether what I have said happens to you or not. All right, so not only is Moshe losing it in terms of not being able to cope, he says, you're going to feed them? I just heard you say you're going to feed them meat for a month. Have you counted (laughs) how many people there are here? And you're going to feed them meat for a month. Excuse me? Okay. Really, really bad. (laughs) Really bad. Really bad. And God gives Moshe a little potch, but doesn't break out against Moshe, right? Like, God seems to understand that Moshe is losing his stuff right now. Because... Moses just questioned God's capacity right. to do something. And God does not like throw Moshe like, to the next mountaintop. Right? So God seems to understand that Moshe's really at the end of his rope. And God's keeping but, does, cool. but does give him a little zets, right? You know, it's like, are, are, you, are you suggesting right now, Mr. Moses, that there is a limit Mm. To what I can do? Is that what you're suggesting? Because I drop them on it every night. <laughs> exactly. Right? You'll see whether or not what I've said will happen. Go out. Go on. Moses went out and reported the words of the Lord to the people. He gathered 70 of the people's elders and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him. He drew upon the spirit that was on him and put it upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they spoke in ecstasy, but did not continue. Two men, one named Eldad and the other Magad, had remained in camp. Yet the spirit rested upon them. They were among those recorded, but they had not gone out to the tent. And they spoke in ecstasy to the camp. A youth ran out and told Moses, saying, Eldad and Magad are acting the prophet in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' attendant from his youth, spoke up and said, My Lord Moses, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you wrought up on my account? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord put his spirit upon them. Moses then re-entered the camp together with the elders of Israel. Okay, very interesting little episode here. So Moshe goes out and reports what God has said to the people. And what does he do with 70 elders? Vayesof. Do you hear that? Vayesof. He gathers them. What does it sound like? Asafsuf. So Asafsuf is the riffraff. He yesofs 70 elders. Right? So this is going to be the opposite of riffraff. The riffraff cause complaining. So the riffraff speak in a way that creates yuckiness. Yesof. The ones he esoft is going to be the opposite of that. They're going to speak, but it's going to be with the ruach of Moshe. Yeah? So he gathers the 70 elders. They're around the tent. God comes down in a cloud and speaks. God draws from the spirit that was on Moshe and puts it on the 70 elders around the tent. And when the spirit rested on them, the yit nabu, 
So they eat nabud. <laughs> How we translate that uh, is interesting. They acted as people who do the behaviors of people who prophesy. What those behaviors are, we're not sure, but attested in the ancient Near East um, is uh, this a word like this one that is the the hitpael form of the noun prophet. So it's something one does to one's or how do you, how, it's reflexive, right? It's a reflexive verb. So it's something I. I don't want to say do to myself because it's the ruach that does it, not me, right? But it's a behavior that is associated with prophet. What's the behavior? It's not prophesying because we have another verb for that. This is to do the behavior that prophets do. If it's not prophesying, what behaviors do prophets do? So attested in the ancient Near East from Mari and other sources, we think it has something to do with either a trance or an ecstatic state through which someone would then <coughs> prophesy, right? So the spirit is taken from Moshe and put on the 70 elders and they go into an ecstatic state or a trance or something like that. The 70. The 70. Two men, one named Eldad and the other Medad, were still back in the camp. They're not at the tent. But what happened? There was some leakage. Leakage. <laughs> and the spirit got on them back at the camp. But they hadn't gone to the tent, right? So they're being witnessed now by people in the camp. So a youth ran to Moshe saying, Eldad and Medad are prophesying, Eldad and Medad are prophesying. And Joshua freaks, right? Joshua says, Moshe, stop them. You have to put an end to this. You have to stop them. And Moshe says, why are you so worked up? On my account? I wish all the people were prophets. I wish all of them would prophesy. And then he goes back into the camp with the 70 elders. So clearly, Moshe does not experience this as a punishment. Yeah. Moshe does not experience this as a diminution. He is relieved to see 70 other people do what he's used to doing. And it says they didn't do it anymore. Look at the end of verse 25. God puts on them the ruach, and they behave like a prophet. But they didn't continue. So it's this one time. It's this one episode. Right? So it's not like God this is an argument against seeing this as a punishment of Moshe. Because it, it's not permanent. God does this. Moshe sees it. He clearly experiences it as some kind of relief. Because he wished all the people would do this. Right? Um, and, and it's not like they're going to be now a continuous challenge to Moshe. Joshua's concerned for Moshe's authority, right? Joshua is Moshe's second. And he is very concerned that Eldad and Medad are doing what Moshe does. Um, 
I just checked it again. But my, my, my recollection of what it said is that Moses picked 70. Presumably he told the Lord who the 70 were. Two just didn't show up. There were not <laughs> 70. There were 68. Or 72. It didn't matter because, and, and Moses would have known they were on the list. <laughs> you know, this was good. This was what should have happened, so they weren't there. God still uh, put it on them. Put it on them. Transferred it to them. Right. But uh, Joshua wouldn't have known that, but Moses did. Mm-hmm. So that, my reading was, yeah, there were only sixty-eight that showed. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like, oh. Two got it long distance. Yeah. Right. Well, that. It, it, but that, it said it was put upon the seventy elders. I know, but then, but, but it also a little bit. In, in either it's case, I mean, I think the important thing about it is that Eldad and Medad are in the camp where people right. can witness them right. prophesying. If the seventy elders start prophesying, they're at the tent. Nobody can see them, right? Well, I think the important part is that they're back at the ranch, yes, right, and everyone can see it. And so then it's like, what's the response going to be when Moshe finds out that these dudes are doing it? In front of everybody. And yes. that's what we get, right, is, is his response. All right, so what do I, I want to do? I want you to take out this. It clearly means that Moshe, it, they don't continue to do this prophesying thing. It was just for that moment. Now, now the question that we're left with, to Susan's point, the question we're left with is, well, how in the heck did that help Moshe? Yeah. They're not going to continue. No. So what, what did Moshe get out of this? Oh, they would then have an understanding. Yes, and a trust. Oh. So maybe prophets having the Ruach put on them wasn't such a great experience for them. Maybe they now understand what Moshe's carrying around all the time. And have a little more Rahmanas for him. A little empathy. All right. Let's look at this commentary by David Kasher. Rabbi Kasher, now is the summer of our discontent. <laughs> right? So we're about to embark on a bunch of stories of complaining. Misery, frustration, anger, and complaints, complaints, complaints. And it is this week's part that begins our slow descent. This time, the main display of grievances is a lustful cry for food, meat, fish, and vegetables made more pathetic by their longing for Egypt, where they suddenly remember eating so well. (laughs) Never mind that they were slaves. Never mind that God is literally dropping sustenance from the heavens. Now our insides are shriveled. There is nothing at all but this manna to look for. Look to look to. Moses cannot take this audacity anymore. He actually asks God to kill him. God flies into a rage. Um, the summer of our discontent has definitely begun. But the season of complaining actually begins, begins a little before this, and we get the incident of the right complaining and the fire. Go to the next page. <clears throat> So this sequence of events is going to happen again and again in the coming days and weeks. The people complain that they are lacking something. God gets angry and punishes them. Moshe intervenes. Destruction is averted. And the cycle begins again. Yeah? But here, this first time, there's one big element missing. What are they complaining about? What do they want? 
Nobody really knows. Sforno uh, tries to answer, saying that they're complaining about the harshness of the journey. But they weren't truly complaining in their hearts, for they had no legitimate reason to complain, but they complained with their words just to test God. Okay? Drop down to Rashi. The complaining was nothing but a pretext. They were seeking a pretext so that they could separate themselves from God. We tend to think of these constant complaints in the Torah as the impulsive outbursts of petulant children. But according to Rashi, they know full well what they're doing. They want to get away from God. They're already done with God. But they're nervous. They don't know what God would do if they just rejected God outright. So they'd rather God push them away first, and they're tempting God to do it. So they're not really complaining, says Rashi. They don't want to be close to God. This is just like a teenager. You have to pick the fight so that you're mad at them, and then they can go on. Because then they can leave. Yes. Because they want to be separate. Right. Right. So that's how Rashi reads this. They don't want to be together with God. That demands too much of them. They have to really show up and be responsible in a covenantal relationship, and they can't handle it. So like a teenager, they try to pick at God so that God will, right, send them away because they're too afraid to do it outright to say, I want to live on my own. I'm sick of you. I want to be an independent person, right? They have to like do other things to get you to help them individuate. (laughs) Both of these comments suggest that the real problem in the desert is never a material crisis, but a spiritual crisis. They aren't really worried about dwindling resources or Moses' authority. Whenever you see the children of Israel rebelling, they are struggling in their relationship with God. So go. he's going to now quote the 15th century Spanish commentator, Rabbi Isaac Arama. And his work at Akedat Yitzchak, who says they're not even using words. <laughs> they had grumbling and discontent in their hearts, but they did not reveal it in words. Only afterwards, when they brought their complaints into the form of words, did they express them as the longing for meat. But they did not really long for meat or anything else. They simply longed for longing's sake, which is much, much worse. The reason we are not given the content of the complaint, remember in that first episode, is that there was no content. It was pure longing with no objective. The problem was not physical hunger or even spiritual hunger. This was just desire, a force unto itself. There is in us longing, a longing, unnameable but all-consuming. This is a part of what it is to be human. We are vaguely aware of a great emptiness within us and plagued with a yearning to fill the void. But we do not know what will satisfy our longings. So we focus on all the things we lack in life in various desperate attempts to find something outside of us that will bring us happiness. Sometimes we find temporary relief, but soon after we get what we want, the longing comes back. Go to the next page. 
He's quoting uh, another teacher when he says, our existential dissatisfactions, he suggests, come from a kind of great sadness that is simply part of the human condition. And often we try to drive away that sadness with physical distractions, food, sex, or drugs, until we get to a point where we have lost all control. Yeah? Right? So drop down. This was the great mistake that the people made when they cried out for meat, fish, and melons, onions, and garlic. They were very specific. They needed these things to be happy. Right? But then they add, we have nothing. Nothing but this mana. So the problem was not outside of them. The problem was inside of them. And so, too, the solution will never be found out there in the desert. The solution is within. This lesson, unfortunately, will take a very long time to learn. We are still working on it. Yeah? Living in gratitude. Right. All right, I'm going to read to you from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's asking the question about that we, I just left you with a moment ago. What does this give Moshe? It doesn't happen again. He has this moment where this, his ruach is shared with 70 others. How is this an answer to Moshe's existential leadership crisis? And Rabbi Sachs says, There can come a time in the life of any truly transformative leader when the sun of hope is eclipsed by the clouds of doubt. Not about God, but about people. Above all, about oneself. Am I really making a difference? Am I deceiving myself when I think I can change the world? I have tried. I have given the very best of my energies and inspiration, yet nothing seems to alter the depressing reality of human frailty and lack of vision. I have given the people the word of God, God's self, yet they still complain. Still they think only about the discomforts of today, not the vast possibilities of tomorrow. Such despair can occur to the very greatest. Moses was the very greatest. Therefore, God gave him the greatest gift of all, one that no one else has ever been given. God let Moses see the influence he had on others. For a brief moment, God took the spirit that is on you and put it on them so that Moses could see the difference he had made to one group, the 70 elders. Moses needed nothing more. He did not need their help. He did not need them to continue to prophesy. All he needed was a transparent glimpse of how his spirit had communicated itself to them. Then he knew he had made a difference. What we leave to others is a trace of our influence for good. We may never see it, but it is there. That is the greatest blessing of leadership. It alone is the antidote to despair, the solid ground of hope. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.